The following is a Voices of Experience Encore show. Has politics changed since you were governor? And if so, how? It has as society has. And see that say in politics, uh, very little respect for one another. Uh, it is hard to build a consensus under those circumstances. Everybody believes they have a mandate of their own. They don't represent their party as such. They all have personal agendas. And uh, the leaders of the legislative branches in Congress have a terrible time trying to get a consensus. So you end up with this kind of gridlock or or watered-down legislation. I think that's the biggest difference. Uh, say it, it is appearing throughout society, but it, it reaches a crescendo in, in our legislative body. Good morning and welcome to this edition to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey, and along with Benny Mathers today, we'll be bringing you some great information, I believe, from people who have experience in life, and that's what our goal is here. That was former Governor John Spellman. Well, before I get to that, he was actually the first King County executive in, from 1969 to eight, 1981, and then he came on to become governor from 1981 to 1985. And uh, his distinction is, among several things that we'll discuss today, is that he was the last elected Republican governor in the state of Washington. As a matter of fact, I believe that the Democrats have been in power running the executive branch of uh, the governor in this state longer than any time in history, not in this state, also across the country. So uh, John Spellman, from the quote that we started out, the government shut down over the weekend, and of course the great divisions that we have in this country, you could have thought that quote came from this morning. However, that quote came from an interview I had with him 20 years ago. So what we're dealing with now, it's been around for a while. I guess that's the point I want to make with that. Uh, Governor Spellman passed away last Tuesday, and uh, I had that interview with him, as I said, 20 years ago. There was a time when uh, you could have cross-relationships with various politicians. The Democrats and the Republicans did talk. And uh, again, that was time the time that it started to erode. That was just around the period of uh, the calendar when uh, the Monica Lewinsky and Bill Clinton fiasco began. I think that interview took just took place just prior to that. So uh, another thing we have today, a true Voices of Experience, Jody Hall. She'll be joining us in uh, about 25 minutes. She is the founder and CEO of Cupcake Royale and Good Ship. And uh, she's going to be talking about running a business in the Seattle area or several businesses. Jody started her career in 1989 with Starbucks when it had 30 stores. Now, that's about how many stores, Starbucks stores are in Factoria. (laughs) Right. right? That's a a good answer. (laughs) And, and, you know, she led the marketing efforts to open new stores. And when she left Starbucks, it had grown to 3,000 stores. So you're listening to Voices of Experience. My name is Paul Casey. And along with Benny Mathers, again, we're bringing you this program 
you'd like to call in at any time, you certainly can. The number is toll-free, 1-888-298-5569, 1-888-298-5569. Back with my interview from 20 years ago with former Governor John Spellman. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit VoicesOfExperience.com and take a five-minute self-employment quiz. That's VoicesOfExperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Self-help, healing, spirituality, and more on Alternative Talk, 1150. John Spellman has been retired from public life for 10 years. His elected positions included King County Commissioner, the first King County Executive in history, and Governor of the State of Washington from 1981 to 1985. Governor Spellman is a partner in the law firm of Carney, Badley, Smith, and Spellman, located in the Columbia Center in downtown Seattle. I recently asked him for his observations on the current state of affairs and to reflect on his public life. My first question, how did you become interested in public life? Oh, I think it was by observing. Uh, certainly as a young person, we depended on radio, and we li- used to listen to it before television. I remember listening to the politicians and the political uh, uh, debates and the national conventions. And then I went to law school back in Washington, D.C. on the G.I. Bill, and I saw the Congress and the Senate in action and all the activity, everything from the firing of MacArthur to the Truman seizing the steel mills, and I, I think that engendered a lot of interest that when I came back to Seattle after law school, uh, got me involved in community activities, you know, various boards and commissions, and community club and so forth. It was a natural evolution. Was there any public figure that stands out in your mind that had major influence on you? Oh, so many. <laughs> you know, so many. It would, it would be hard to pick one out. I, I, Eisenhower, I certainly admired, and I was back in uh, the school when Eisenhower was elected. I think he was a most admirable and a, and, and a wonderful president who in the long run will be properly judged. Politics was obviously a different time than in the 1950s. My next question, Governor, would be, has politics changed since you were governor? And if so, how? It has, as society has. And, and see that, say, in politics, uh, very little respect for one another. Uh, it is hard to build a consensus under those circumstances. Everybody believes they have a mandate of their own. They don't represent their party as such. They all have personal agendas, and uh, the leaders of the legislative branches in Congress have a terrible time trying to get a consensus, so you end up with this kind of gridlock or, or watered-down legislation. I think that's the biggest difference. Uh, say it, it is appearing throughout society, but it it reaches a crescendo in our legislative body. What do you consider your greatest achievement as being governor of the state of Washington? Well, I suspect, I look back and I think it was doing a really tough job in terrible times, but the best part of that was that we had to prioritize, and I think it's very important that government every so often have to prioritize. For example, in all of the programs in uh, the Department of Social and Health Services, we had to prioritize each one with the help of the community and with the help of the advocacy groups, decide which ones were the most important, which had to be funded, 
at what level and on down the line to those that are nice but we can't afford them. I think that was a, a really good exercise. It probably uh, not only made the department efficient and people understand it, but it allowed the state to save some money. It probably should go through that process again. Along those lines, what memory sticks out in your mind that would best define John Spellman as governor? Well, I, that's a really hard one. I, I guess it would probably involve the Northern Tier Pipeline and the Cherry Point floating dry dock projects. Uh, both were had a tremendous amount of public support. Uh, the administration in Washington, D.C., uh, various groups really thought Northern Tier was the greatest thing that was going to happen, and you know, I was the pipeline across Puget Sound running all the way back to the mid Midwest. Uh, and after studying it a long time, I felt the environmental risks were much too great, and, and the uh, carrot being held out was a very elusive carrot. really wondered if it would ever get built properly and whether there would be any economic impact. Following on the heels of that, we had Cherry Point, which was up around Bellingham, and uh, was to be built in, in that area and was to scoop out some tidelands and build these floating dry docks. And everybody kind of assumed... Uh, the media and everybody that I was going to go along with that because I had uh, come out against in uh, Northern Tier. Uh, I remember late at night thinking, well, could I look my kids in the face if I let that project go ahead and decide, no, I really couldn't. So I, I also killed Cherry Point, and I must say that uh, in recent years I've run into some fish biologists and all who say, they think that was the most important thing I did at the time. It, it, was a, it was a tough call, but I felt very good about both of them. Well, you certainly don't see a lot of people demonstrating in downtown Seattle or anywhere else saying, boy, we want Cherry Point. That's no, for sure. no, you don't. Not now. <laughs> at the time, though, jobs, you know, we had a tough economy, and both Northern Tier and Cherry Point promised a lot of jobs in construction, but we would have paid a very heavy price for them. Today we join Paul as he revisits with former Governor John Spellman, and he asked the former governor what was his biggest regret as governor of Washington. Certainly I would have loved to have been governor in good times, uh, when there was money and when you didn't have to make those tough decisions, where you didn't have to cut, where you didn't even have... We had to raise taxes, and that's something you hate to do, but uh, you've got to keep the services and the education in place. Uh, that certainly was my biggest disappointment. Uh, overshadows everything else. What other careers did you consider other than public life and law? Well, again, you've got to remember, I was a product of the World War II era, and I served and I came out, uh, peace had been uh, achieved. I was in San Francisco in uniform when uh, the United Nations was being first set up, and uh, that brought a certain idealism, and the idealism was to encourage uh, peace among the world, not have more wars, uh, and peace among people. So my the things I looked at were the Foreign Service, you know, to work in the uh, United for the United States to try to achieve world peace. Uh, I looked at the clergy as a way of trying to, uh, uh, and I actually spent a little time uh, studying there as a way of uh, dealing with people's problems. And I looked at teaching in the same vein. I finally decided that to be effective in a couple of those roles, at least, a law degree wouldn't hurt a bit in that frequently you had more uh, influence when you came in, not at the bottom rung of the State Department or wherever. Are you optimistic about the future of Washington State and the United States? Yes, I'm, I'm uh, extremely optimistic about the future of Washington. You know, we're 
were seeing, seated in a catbird seat and, uh, for trade reasons and, and all uh, were very uh, strategically located. And I teach a class one night a week of, of young people who work all day and then come to school at night. And uh, I've been doing that for some time. Those young people and those young families uh, are so good, you can't help but have optimism about the future of the country. That's former Governor John Spellman, who served in that capacity from 1981 to 1985. By the way, sandwiched in that interview, you heard the voice of Jim Day. And uh, for those of you who have been listening to Sandusky and now Hubbard Radio for many years, Jim Day was on Kixie and then went on to Smooth Jazz and was the uh, host there for several years as well. So that's Jim Day. He helped, like Benny Mathers is doing now, helped produce my show in 1998. He's the one I did vote for. You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. If you have questions, comments, or topics that you would like to suggest for future shows, call Paul at 206-714-8154. That's 206-714-8154. Jody Hall, founder and CEO of Cupcake Royale and Good Ship, and a former executive with Starbucks, is with us. We introduced her earlier, just a uh, sterling background. And uh, before we get into the interview, which I'm really excited to have you on the program, and uh, that is your personal background. I kind of picked up with where you started with Starbucks, I think in the late 1980s. In 1989, we talked about that and the stores, number of stores you were involved in opening up. But how about your personal background? How did you find your way to Seattle? Yeah, my parents, uh, we grew up in Minnesota, a big Irish Catholic family, and ended up, my dad uh, worked for the phone company and wanted to get a transfer to Seattle. He loved the Pacific Northwest, and so when I was 11, the whole family moved out to Seattle back in 1978, when it was the last person leaving the city to please turn off the lights kind of time. That's very true, and certainly a much different city than it was then. You think of 1978, that was about the first couple of years of the Seattle Mariners and the Seattle Seahawks playing. Prior to that, we had the Seattle Supersonics. They were our first pro team, started in 1968. But around that time... I actually think that Seattle really started to get on the map because of you moved here, Jody. But of course, that was the biggest <laughs> part of it. But I agree. <laughs> also, the Seahawks and, and the Mariners, you started reading people coming to the city who were traveling from other cities with sports. And they'd write about, well, the Mariners lost again. But what a beautiful city. What a beautiful area that pro sports either for the good or the bad, brought really the focus on the Pacific Northwest. And um, it's been a steady, eddy sort of increase in population ever since. And we've gone through spurts, obviously, and uh, growth. And then what you mentioned, too, we've gone through our difficult times with the last person in Seattle turn out the light. Now, 
A big one, of course, was Starbucks, who put their footprint here. And uh, you were very much a part of that growth. And what I referred to earlier, there were 30 stores when you started and 3,000 when you left. That must have been an incredible experience. Could you describe yeah, some of that? Yeah, it really was. It was taking this thing, this commodity of coffee, which people enjoy every day, and turning it into a, a lifestyle experience and and uh, creating a better cup of coffee, roasting uh, beans that were better, and kind of sharing that gospel to the masses and it was you know compared to canned coffee which is what people enjoyed back then um quite a different experience so yeah it was just really revolutionizing the way people thought of coffee and and how and you put as you said into an experience right with starting starbucks now three thousand stores did you travel worldwide when I was this. there, um, my first role was to, in marketing was to open a few stores and markets. I think I opened about 25 markets. And by the way, we were only in Washington, Seattle, Portland, Vancouver, and I just opened in Chicago. So opening markets like uh, New York and Washington, D.C. and Atlanta, and Florida and uh, Texas and, you know, uh, all over. <laughs> so my role in that part of the growth was more around growing the United States markets. We we were uh, we were only in a handful of markets when I started. You know, and yeah, um, I did a bit of traveling for that. I'm going to actually come clean here because I talk a lot about starting a business, being an entrepreneur, and I sometimes try to come across how wise I am. But uh, say coming clean here, I remember I was in Vancouver, BC, probably in about 2001 or two. And I saw a Starbucks on one corner and right across the street, another Starbucks. And I commented at the time, I'm going, what idiot is running this place? Or who's in charge of this? This model is not going to work. I predict this company will be out of business within two years. So I remember when Howard came to us and he said, our number one store in the company is on the corner of, I can't remember the cross street, but it was on Robson in Vancouver. Oh, really? And and the opportunity to take over diagonally another store was a bold move. And we all kind of said, well, if somebody else opens there, they'll go there. You know, like people don't want to cross the street, we were learning. Um, and we did, and it was the number two store in the company after we opened that. So there it was. It actually started in Vancouver, B.C., that notion of putting a store right across the street. Yep. That's fascinating. Wow. I didn't know that. Uh, now I do. So uh, yeah. anyhow, I was slightly off on that one, okay? <laughs> Just slightly. So you're at Starbucks as an executive. Now you're getting the entrepreneur bug, right? To say, wow, I'm learning a lot of things here, but maybe I can go off and start my own. So you started um, Cupcake Royale. Tell us That's about that. right. Yeah, I mean, I really learned, and I was working under one of the great entrepreneurs, really, somebody who knew not only to build a really strong business plan, but build a culture that was people first underneath that, that uh, built a sense of of just fierce ownership and entrepreneurialism, um, and just took all that I learned to create Cupcake Royale. Was he a real bold? I mean, that's kind of a dumb question. Of course, he was bold. 
But how much of it had to do with him being a huge risk taker or being really methodical about how he approached this? You see what I'm driving at? Yeah, I mean, I think at, on one level, yes, super bold. I mean, what what he did to differentiate coffee was to turn it into an experience. And after traveling to Italy and seeing that people truly commune at the neighborhood cafe and saw that opportunity espresso as an opportunity as well, this beverage play where Starbucks used to sell hoping coffee <laughs> that you take home and grind. Um, and, you know, he saw that it's a, it's a commodity. It's something, it's one of the most widely commodities, traded commodities in the world, coffee. And to turn that into experience, to me, the, the risk, is, you know, at the end of the day, I think what we were creating at Starbucks was, you know, we, we were wise to the notion that at the end of the day, anybody could source amazing beans and roast them. But what differentiates Starbucks is the customer experience. Did you bring kind of that same notion, that same concept to a Cupcake Royale? Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. We wanted to be in neighborhoods, and we are. We're in six neighborhoods across Seattle. Uh, create an artisan cup of coffee, one cup at a time, no big steaming pitchers, you know, really craft espresso and craft the perfectly foamed milk to blend with that. And then pair that with in a delicious, cake that was made from scratch with local seasonal ingredients and uh, frost that with real American-style buttercream, and and cake is a, a part of celebration. It's part of birthdays and weddings and celebration. You're in Ballard, Madrona, Queen Anne, West Seattle, Capitol Hill, 108 Pine Street. Well, you're certainly doing it, and you <laughs> jumped into a whole new arena. We passed the legalization of marijuana in the state of Washington. Then in 2014, again, if uh, Cupcake Royale is not enough, you brought that into the marijuana industry, and it's called the Good Ship. Yes, it keeps you on your toes. I mean, Good Ship obviously is a separate company, and we are makers of damn fine edibles. We are currently in a good handful or a good amount of stores, I should say, over 100 doors in Washington State, Um, and we make items in bakery, confection, and chocolate that are full-dose 10-milligram products to microdose 2.5-milligram pastilles or mints. So basically, we're taking the same kind of methodology of sourcing great ingredients, making a great product. We have to make a product with shelf life because it has to be packaged. If someone wanted to follow up with you on, uh, let's say, your uh, Cupcake Royale or The Good Ship, how would they do that? Uh, you can you can email me. You could you could email me J O D Y at the You're listening to Voices of Experience with Paul Casey. Visit voicesofexperience.com and take a five minute self employment quiz. That's voicesofexperience.com. The higher you score on the quiz, the higher your prospects for success. One more time, visit VoicesOfExperience.com. All one word. Bill Maher hosts HBO's Real Time on Friday nights, and he has a segment called New Rules. The following is just a short clip from his segment on New Rules. We all want to be healthy. Some work at it better than others. I could certainly do better. But Bill has me looking a little bit differently in how I view 
individual exercise and health. And in fact, that collectively, as a society, that will have a much greater bearing on how long we live and other factors that go into longevity. All of this made me think about a piece I read a few months ago in the failing New York Times, which made a point I thought deserved amplification. Author Pagan Kennedy said, when it comes to staying healthy, it's the decisions we make as a collective that matter more than any choice we make on our own. In other words, no matter how much you do for yourself, how right you eat, if the air is full of lead and the bug populations are out of control and your city is underwater, it doesn't matter. You can eat kale till it comes out your ears. In the 1970s, when America passed a law to get the lead out of gasoline, the lead levels in our blood dropped by more than 80%. In the 80s, when fluorocarbons were destroying the ozone layer, we banned them and the hole closed up. But that was back when Scientific American was the name of a magazine. Now it's a contradiction in terms. This battle will not be won in the checkout line at Whole Foods. To address a problem of this scale, we need governments, preferably ones that don't employ Scott Pruitt. We, uh, the Times article pointed out that the grave is littered with health food pioneers who didn't even live to the average lifespan. Yule Gibbon swore he'd live forever thanks to a diet of wild plants, and now he is a diet for wild plants, <laughs> dead at 64. Adele Davis was so ahead of her time in saying we should avoid starchy foods like white bread. Ironically, is toast. Dead at seven. Nathan Pritikin of the Pritikin Diet, dead at 69. Clive McKay thought the path to living past 100 was severe caloric restriction. Dead at 69. Michelle Montagnac sold 17 million copies of Eat Yourself Slim and died at 66, just before finishing his next book, Drink Yourself Erect. Jim Fix wrote the complete book of running, which his heart stopped doing at 52. Dead while running. <laughs> Meanwhile, David Crosby is fine. <laughs> I don't know the secret to a long, healthy life, although I sure hope Ruth Bader Ginsburg does. Oh. Yeah. That's all the time we have for this edition to Voices of Experience. My thanks to the late former Governor John Spellman for the interview he gave me 20 years ago. It puts a lot in perspective. We were certainly divided then and actually did me a lot of good to listen to his interview at this time. Give me a call at 206-459-5536 if you'd like to talk about anything as it relates to the show. Have a wonderful and safe and sane 4th of July this week. I don't know if we use those terms anymore about safe and sane, but it's a good guideline. Now, last week I predicted that barring any major injuries, the Seattle Mariners would be in the playoffs this year. They have not done anything to temper that prediction. They have not lost a game since. <laughs> 